Well, good morning. Man, it is so good to be with you all this morning. Um, As Wes said, my name is Cole Newton, and I am the pastor of Western Meadows Baptist Church in Durant, Oklahoma, um, so which is about four hours from here. Um, but uh, Durant is close enough to the Texas border that both of our daughters were born in Texas. And so if you guys do officially decide to become the Republic of Texas at some point, um, we're definitely going to pull for uh, to, be, to become naturalized citizens. Uh, so just, just know that. Um, so I have the honor of being able to come here with my oldest daughter, Eowyn. And so for any Lord of the Rings fans in here, Yes. Uh, so, uh, my wife, Tiffany, my smoking hot Colombian supermodel wife, had to stay home. She has an ear infection today, and so, uh, so she was looking forward so much to seeing you guys again, uh, to seeing Wes and, Wes and, uh, and Brittany and uh, Blake and Kelly again. Uh, well, and you guys too. Um, but all the rest of you are new to us, so seeing, seeing, seeing our friends again and then seeing uh, your, the church, this church that we've prayed for for so long, and she's staying with our, our new baby, almost six months old, named Gwendolyn. And so that is our family, yes. And so um, I'm excited to be here for, like any good pastor, three reasons. So first of all, um, Blake and Kelly, um, had the, we, I had the privilege of being, being able to be their pastor um, for about a year and a half while they came to Durant um, over there for a little bit, and then we got to commission them off to come down here to be a part of this church plant, um, and, so, and so we have been praying for you guys. We've been praying for Redemption Baptist Church. We continue to pray for Redemption Baptist Church. Um, in, in November, we're going to be doing a, um, um, a focus in our church of praying for our domestic connections for some other church plants and some domestic um, ministries that we're partnered with together as a church that we have connections with. Um, and so we'll be spending a, a week um, giving very focused prayer uh, to your guys and to this church. And so, um, so I'm so excited to, to, to see you guys and to get to actually put some faces um, to, uh, to the prayers that we make for Redemption Baptist Church. Um, but second, I'm excited because you guys are preaching through Ecclesiastes, and I love Ecclesiastes. It is my favorite book of the Bible, if you are allowed to say that you have a favorite book of the Bible. I don't, I've never, never been completely sure if that is allowed or not, um, but I'll say it. It is mine. <clears throat> we pre- I preached it once before in 2018, and every year since, I've been asking, has enough time passed by before I get to preach Ecclesiastes again? Um, I absolutely love the book. I do not think that it is the depressing book that everybody makes it out to be. Um, I think that the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, um, that he is painting to us a, a, um, a, a portrait in the negative Um, trying to point us to ultimate and lasting joy. And he's showing us all of the ways in which people try to achieve joy. They try to achieve lasting, meaningful purpose in this life, and it fails them every time because they're searching for it under the sun. But a third reason why I'm excited to be here and to preach this text in particular is because when I preached uh, through Ecclesiastes back in 2018, I was preaching this chapter um, specifically, and the night before um, I got to Ecclesiastes 8 to preach it, uh, Eowyn had her first uh, febrile seizure, um, and we had no idea what that was, and it scared us to death, and we got back home at about 3.34 in the morning, and then I had to get up early in the morning and preach this text, and so... Well, I can go and I can listen to my sermon um, that I preached over Ecclesiastes 8, um, and, and I, it, 
appeared pretty coherent uh, to me. Um, in that moment, I was under the most severe brain fog that I've ever had um, while preaching in my, in my life. And so, and so by the Lord's providence, it's really good to be able to to, to get to preach this text again and, and, uh, and, and have a lot more clarity um, as I'm doing it. And, so, and so, so I'm super pumped to be here with you guys. I'm happy to preach Ecclesiastes, to get to see all of you, and to get to preach this chapter in particular. And so <clears throat> Wes has read the text for us this morning, and so let me pray for us, and then we will dive into God's word. So let's pray. Oh, Father, <clears throat> Lord, we pray that this morning as we come to you in your word, that you would give us ears to hear the words that you are speaking. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us eyes to behold the wondrous things that are found within your law. God, we pray that your word this morning would be more desirous to us than gold and even much fine gold. And that, O oh Lord, that it would be sweeter than honey on our lips, even the drippings of the honeycomb. Father, we know that man cannot live by bread alone, but we instead are sustained by every word that comes from your mouth. Father, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can only be satisfied in your word and in your son, Jesus. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so R.C. Sproul, he makes the point uh, that Latin contains two words for world, saculum and mundum. So the latter of those words, mundum, refers to the world spatially or geographically, right? And so uh, if, you, if any of us have studied church history, you probably know that word from the phrase Athanasius contra mundum, right? Um, Athanasius against the world, or as we'll celebrate this month in Reformation month, right? Luther contra mundum, Luther against the world. But the former word, saculum, refers to the world temporal, the world in time, right? And indeed, a saculum in Latin was often used as a measurement of time, roughly meaning the equivalent of one human life, right? And our word, secular, comes from that Latin root. And when the suffix ism is attached to that word secular, and we talk about secularism, <clears throat> we have before us a worldview that is entirely focused upon the now, right? to the exclusion of eternity. Secularism forgoes the transcendent in order to fix our attention upon the now and upon the here, the present, the imminent, right? So long before secularism became the dominant religion of the West, as it is, in fact, long before the West as we know it existed, the preacher of Ecclesiastes grappled with the vanity of a non-transcendent life, a life purely under the sun. And so, brothers and sisters, secularism, though that is the primary, the primary worldview that is contrary to Christianity that we face today, is nothing new. And indeed, hasn't the preacher told us something like that before, that there is nothing new under the sun? You see, brothers and sisters, the human heart, ever, ever since Adam first chose the vaporous pleasure of eating the forbidden fruit, our human hearts are bent toward sin, toward casting our full attention upon this mundum, upon this seculum, the here and now. The preacher, instead, is intent on shifting our focus away from this mundum, away from this seculum 
from showing us its futility, its vanity, and pointing us up above the sun toward the one who spoke the sun into existence. Now, chapter 8 specifically, the preacher is going to unpack for us a topic that he has already kind of addressed before in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, that is oppression under the sun. And indeed, I think that that probably the best word that we could use to describe the big overall theme of this chapter, if we were to give it one, even though this word doesn't come up um, in the chapter, is justice. The preacher is, uh, is, is, is focusing on the theme of justice and particularly what we do with injustice under the sun. What hope do we have when we see injustice prevailing around us? <clears throat> Let us not say that the Bible is not topical to our present day, right? So the question before us this morning is how do we set our gaze above the injustice of the world and upon the judge of all the earth? So we'll divide this text into four parts. Um, So the first part is verse 1, which says, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So this Verse is a transitional verse between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And there's even many commentators that suggest that it should belong a part of, uh, belong to chapter 7 instead of to chapter 8. But like wisdom literature, the answer is probably yes, right? Um, That it is the ending of chapter 7 and it is the beginning of chapter 8. That's kind of how wisdom literature is is constructed, right? Um, And so uh, the, the question that it asks, the two questions that it asks first is who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Brothers and sisters, even though our wisdom is always insufficient, we should still strive to be counted among the wise. For who is like them? There's no one else like the earth, like the wise in all of the earth. And just as James teaches us in his epistle in the New Testament, we should see ourselves fundamentally as being a people who are unwise, a people who are foolish at heart and cry out to the Lord for wisdom. And thankfully, the Lord is gracious to pour wisdom into our foolish hearts. The second half of the verse then says how we may recognize the wise, the ones who have an interpretation of the thing. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So the preacher here is telling us that wisdom leaves a a a visible impact on a person. It changes their countenance. It changes how they look. And of course, since Jesus is the wisdom of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the most clear example that we can see today is when we see that someone who has been radically converted by the Lord, right? And we see that they've, they've come into contact with the wisdom of God, with the embodied wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ, And all of a sudden, they are radically different. Their face has changed. Their countenance glows, right? Like Moses coming down off Mount Sinai. Everyone sees the effects of someone who who was once living for sin, living for the flesh, living for the world, and all of a sudden has been radically saved by Jesus Christ. And now they are a new man, a different person, right? And so, that is how we should also be. Just like Moses descending from Sinai, we who have been adopted as God's sons and daughters ought to reflect our adoption in our faces. We should reflect our redemption to the rest of the world. So the second main section of this chapter comes in verses 2 through 9, where he's specifically going to talk about how should we relate to the king, to authority. going to talk about justice in the civil government, in the civil sphere of life, right? And so we'll 
take a quick pass through these verses, um, explain them a little bit, and we'll go back and we'll give some application at the end. So verse 2 gives us kind of the thesis for this little section. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And if you're reading the ESV, you may see that there's a little... Your Bible may have a footnote, um, may not. I think if you're reading, on, if you're reading online, it has a footnote um, that says that that last phrase could also be translated because of, God, of, uh, because of your oath to God, right? And so either way, what's, what the preacher is telling us is that we, are, we should keep the king's command because there is a divine covenant being made there, right? And of course, this isn't just an Old Testament idea. Instead, Paul actually affirms this, that the reason that we should obey civil magistrates, that we should obey civil authorities, is because, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God. None. There is not one person in authority on this planet that does not have their authority given to them by God, right? And so why do we keep the king's command? Why do we keep the command of the, of, the, of, of the civil magistrates above us? It's because God is involved. It's because God is the one who has given them authority, God's oath to them and our oath to God. God is involved. And so our readiness to obey earthly governments should be a reflection of our trust in the ultimate sovereignty of God, that God is the ultimate king, and he is the one who establishes kings and dethrones kings. Now, he continues on. Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in, in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So now he gives us this, this answer for, 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 for another reason for why we should keep the, the king's command, right? So we keep the, the king's command because if we take our stand in an evil cause, if we go against the king's command, right, um, then... He can do whatever he pleases, and so he probably will wield the sword, right? And of course, this is another place where we find a parallel to what Paul said in Romans chapter 13, where he says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, speaking of the ruler, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has given earthly authority of the sword of enacting justice upon evil to discourage wickedness among the earth, right? So who can say to the king, what are you doing? His word is supreme. Verse 5 then tells us, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and a wise heart will know the proper time in the just way, right? So if we keep the king's command, things are going to go well for us, right? God has instituted these earthly authorities and if we follow according to the civil magistrates to what God has ordained by his sovereignty then things will go well there will be no evil thing that befalls us then in verse 6 he says for there is a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him a time and a way for what hold on to that we'll come back to it in just a second verse 7 for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Well, now Paul's giving, or now, now the preacher is giving to us um, the, the, the extent of governmental authorities, right? That even the king 
himself is not, does not have power over the day of death. There's no man on this planet that can save himself from death. All men will die, right? Alexander the Great is a great example of, right, the one who, who at the young age of 30-ish, right, sat down and wept because he ran out of world to conquer, and then he was on his way back home, and in the city of Babylon, um, ended up dying as a young man, right, um, and lost his entire, his, his entire empire. Everything that he had devoted his life to at a young age was stripped from him, taken away all at once. No man can have power over the day of death. Every king, no matter how powerful, still must face the, his maker at the end of the day. But then verse 9, look at what verse 9 has to say. And I think that this is a really important verse that should cause us to go back and kind of reevaluate the verses that we just read. All this I observed, so everything that we just read, all this I observed while applying my heart to all this done under the sun. And what's the context? When man had power over man to his hurt. So here's the deal that's really common in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's, a, it's, it's the grand theme of Ecclesiastes, the grand structure of Ecclesiastes. Um, so I think that the way that we're supposed to read Ecclesiastes is the first time we read through it, we're supposed to read through it as it is, right? And it's supposed to make us wrestle with a lot of things, right? The vanity of life. Is life truly meaningless, right? In chapter 2, he says, I hated life. Is that biblical? Should we hate life when we look at, when we look at how broken everything is, Right? And then by the time we get to the end of the book, we read, him, we read him say, after all's been heard, here's the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. He's going to bring everything into judgment. That's the epilogue. It's the last word that he gives. And he purposely says, after everything that I've said, here's what you need to know. Fear God, obey his commandments. He will judge everything, even things that are done in secret. God will call it on the question. And so then when we get to that, we should go, Okay, so this is the ultimate conclusion. I need to go back and read Ecclesiastes again with this conclusion in mind and see how this now applied as lenses as a lens helps me read the rest of the book, right? How should I interpret the vanities of life in light of the fact that I should fear God, obey his commands, and he is going to bring everything into judgment. He's going to judge every evil, every vanity in this world, right? And that's what we're seeing in microcosm here. So at first when we read through these verses, it just sounds like he's saying, hey, God's instituted the king. Obey the king. Do what he says, right? Things are going to go well for you. Just obey the king, right? And just remember that even the king doesn't have the power over the day of death, right? He'll, he'll, he'll die one day too. But now we get to verse 9, and we see that the context with which he's been looking at all of these things is he says that he's been studying when man had power over man to his hurt. Well, who has the most power over man? The king. He's just said that the king's word is supreme. No one is higher than the king. So if anyone has power over man to do hurt to man, no one exceeds the king. Well, so now we need to go back, right? Now we need to reinterpret these verses a little bit. So he still says, keep the king's command, right? It's a wise thing to do, right? God has made an oath to him. We should, our default should be to obey the king. But then he says in verse three again, do not be hasty to go from his presence and do not take your stand for an evil cause. He does whatever he pleases for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? 
But look at this, verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And a wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. So the interesting thing about this Hebrew word for evil is that it doesn't always necessarily mean morally wicked. Sometimes it can just mean bad, right? Like something that we wouldn't want to happen, right? An evil thing, a bad thing, right? Like is getting into, into a wreck in a car, is that an evil thing? Well, I mean, there may be malicious intent behind it, but most of the time it's typically just an accident, right? <clears throat> it's, just a, it's just a vanity that happens under the sun, right? It's an evil thing, but it's not a morally evil thing, Right? And so I think in light of verse 9, I think that that's a, another interpretation that we should have for this verse as well. Whoever keeps a command will know no bad thing. In other words, a yes man to the king is probably going to prosper. The one who's willing to forsake his morals in order to obey whatever the, earth, whatever the earthly authority says, things in this life are typically going to go well for him. No bad thing is going to happen to him because he's going to be willing to sacrifice whatever he has in order to make sure that he is in the king's good graces, right? But now look at the second half of that verse. And the wise in heart will know the proper time in the just way. For what? I think for when it means to, for when it would be time to not obey the king. For when it would be right to say to the king, what are you doing? Right? You're making this judgment, and this is not a godly judgment. This is not a wise judgment. <clears throat> and so now Solomon is presenting to us what we see in verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Anyone who says to the king, what are you doing, is probably going to meet trouble. For the word of the king is supreme after all. But the wise know that there's a time and a place for everything. And so the wise don't just nonchalantly disobey the king, right? They don't make every matter a hill worth dying on. But they do know when it's time, like William Tyndale, to say, the king has said that we can't make the translation of the Bible in English. Well, I want to honor the king, but God ultimately is the king of kings. And then the last words on his lip as he was burning in the flames was God opened the eyes of the king. He respected the king. He wanted to give his devotion to the king, but he knew the time and the place. He knew when it was time to take his stand honoring the king of kings rather than the, than the earthly king, right? <clears throat> and so in this light, we come back to verse 8, and we again give thanks that no man has the power to retain the spirit. Kings have orchestrated the deaths of many people throughout history, have slaughtered many who took a stand for justice and for truth, but we come to the conclusion at the end of that verse, wickedness, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Ultimately, wickedness will not prevail, even if that is wickedness within the highest places on earth. So, that's what we get from these verses, right? From these first nine verses that we see here in Ecclesiastes. We have the, our default should be to obey the king. And yet there is a time and a place where, we, where civil disobedience may be called for 
where it may be the wisest thing to go against the king, even if it brings trouble upon our heads. How can we apply this to our present day? Especially when we consider that we're not under a monarchy, right? We're under a representative constitutional democracy form of government, right? So, and of course, we can also say that this question has been heightened by our present political climate, right? Maybe we can take three principles from these verses. First of all, we should strive to obey civil law. We should obey the king's command. God has instituted government, and he has instituted them for our good. It is better to be under government than to be under no government, (laughs) right? Anarchy is not a better solution. And indeed, Romans 13 verse 5 states, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so, brothers and sisters, we should be slow to disobey. But we should ultimately submit to God's law and be ready to face consequences for our rebellion if God's law goes against the law of the land. Second, we should also be active and responsible citizens. Right? We are dual citizens in this life. We are citizens of heaven, and we are citizens here on earth. So we should, of course, pay our taxes. Paul specifically says that in Romans chapter 13, right? One of the verses of the Bible that so many of us wish would not, be, would not have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they are, right? And we should respect our king. And yet, we can have a slightly unique perspective when we read the preacher saying, who may say to the king, what are you doing? Because under our form of government, the answer is we can, Right? The founding fathers of our country, particularly, purposefully decided to call the highest person, the, per, the, the person with the highest authority in this land, Mr. President rather than Your Majesty, <laughs> in order to emphasize that he is a citizen among citizens, right? And so when we look at our specific context, the way that our government is configured is that we do not owe our ultimate allegiance to one man. The way that the founding fathers of our country have set it up is we owe our allegiance, our earthly allegiance, to a document, right? That, is, that the whole point of it was to transcend the authority of any man. We hold to the Constitution as our ultimate authority. And we have respect. We have respect for, for the president. We have respect for, uh, for Congress and for, and for the, the Supreme Court judges. But our ultimate allegiance under the form of government that we have is given to the Constitution, which is supposed to reign above all three forms of government. So, act accordingly. Third, do not be surprised by injustice. Because people are born in sin, democracies will contain abuses, just like monarchies. Because having a king with sole authority is not the problem. We are. Right? I agree with, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others, right? There is no form of government on this planet that will negate all sin. We're simply trying to live life in the vanity under the sun. We're trying to mitigate sin as much as we can in this present life. Augustine, one of my favorite quotes of Augustine, he says, remove justice and what are kingdoms but gangs of criminals on a large scale? And what are criminal gangs? But petty kingdoms. And he gives this little story to illustrate that about Alexander the Great capturing a pirate. And he says this. He says, the king asked the fellow 
What is your idea? Infesting this area. And the pirate answered with uninhibited insolence, the same as yours, infesting the earth. But because, you, because I do it with a tiny craft, I'm called a pirate. But because you have a mighty navy, you're called an emperor. <laughs> Things, brothers and sisters, have not changed. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. Just as a pirate once rebuked the world leader of his day, so too do we look at our leaders and politicians and we see corruption and injustice. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And so, what hope then do we have in a world of oppression, in a world of injustice? Well, in verses 10 through 13, Solomon expands his scope a little bit. Instead of focusing specifically on civil, the civil realm, right? He takes, this, he takes his scope all the way to all of life in general. How do we respond to injustice as a whole? Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried, and they, go, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had once done such things. This also is vanity. So now his eyes are just upon how the wicked are treated, right? And how apparently the person that he's talking to, that he's talking about here, was a person who was known to be a wicked man, and yet he kept a religious facade. He went into the holy place, and when he died, even though people knew that he was a wicked man, they gave adulations to him. And Solomon looks at it and says, well, when the wicked has praise and honor and he's treated as a righteous and honorable person, it's vanity. It's pointless, right? Then in verse 11, he gives another scenario. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed, is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, of course, the purpose of law is to mitigate against sin. Right? As an example of this, ask yourselves this question honestly. If speed limits were not enforced, how many of us would follow them? You don't have to answer out loud, right? Let that be between you and God, right? And of course, surely we'll never know how many murders were prevented just by the fact that there is consequence for murder. What Solomon is lamenting here is that even when there may be a judgment against a crime, judgment against a sin, but even when that judgment is not executed speedily, more sin is produced, right? It encourages further sin. And so what we have in, verses, in verse 10 and verse 11 is he's giving us these two examples of general injustice, right? A wicked man that has a religious facade and is praised after his death as a religious person, and then we have civil magistrates not enacting justice swiftly enough, and so therefore evil just continues to blossom. What do we do with this? What do we do with the injustice of a world like this? Verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. A third injustice, right? Yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And look at verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he belong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. I want you to notice a specific wording in verse 12. So throughout the book, and we saw this in verse 10, where he says, Then I saw. Right? Have you noticed this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, right? He's giving his observations to life. This I have seen, what I have observed, what I saw with my eyes. 
But now in verse 12, he doesn't say, I saw. What does he say? Yet I know. Yet I know. Beyond physical, beyond the visible, there's one thing that I know. We may look around at the injustice of life and we may say that evil prospers. The ones who do evil a hundred times, the only response that they get for their evil is that they get a long life. Where's the one that's serving the poor? Where's the one that's doing good to society? Where's the one who's pouring himself out for the good of others? He dies young. And we look and we say, this life is vanity. And yet the preacher says, but I'll tell you what I know. It will be well with those who fear before God. And I also know that it will not be well with the wicked that don't fear before God. Brothers and sisters, those who would attempt to argue with you that Ecclesiastes is a fundamentally atheist book, (laughs) as if God would inspire an atheist book to be slipped into the Bible, this is a marvelous display of the preacher's faith. Although he cannot see it with his physical eyes, he rests in the hope that God will care for those who fear him and will judge the wicked. Solomon's hope is not upon justice in this life. His hope is upon God to enact justice. This is a word that is desperately needed for us today. Because as I said, the main religion today is secularism, right? A religion devoid of God, devoid of of attempting to be devoid of religion, right? But we are fundamentally religious creatures, right? So we can't escape religion. So secularism in attempting to be a non-religion ends up becoming just as religious as the rest of them, right? And today what we see is one of the primary lens of how we wrestle with injustice in the world today comes from a man named Karl Marx, right? So there are three men back in the 1800s that fundamentally shaped how the secular mind views the world today. And that was Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and Charles Darwin, right? So Charles Darwin gave the secular mind a way of interpreting the origin of the world, where we come from. Then Sigmund Freud gave, us and gave the secular mind an answer to, how, to what we do with guilt, to what we do with sin, And finally, Karl Marx gave us a heaven to strive for, a communist paradise here on earth. They answered the basic fundamental questions of life. Where do we come from? What do we do with our sin? And where are we going? What are we striving for, right? And so Karl Marx, just like the preacher, saw the injustice done in the world. He saw oppression. And he saw oppression happening in a top-down structure, right? That those in power were were oppressing those below them. And so to that we say, yeah, the Bible points that out. That there is oppression within this world. But notice that that Karl Marx, the conclusion that he came to was that because there is systemic oppression in the land, a systemic solution must be called for, revolution. We must overthrow the systems of the world and we must create instead absolute equality here on earth. We must strive to make earth as much like heaven as possible. At least the secular idea of heaven. (laughs) But, that's a fool's hope. Now Now when you exclude God, it's the only hope that you can strive for. You have to strive for heaven on earth because you don't believe in heaven. But it is a fool's hope. It's 
It's the same as the people of Babel saying to themselves, let's build a tower to make a name for ourselves that we won't be scattered upon the earth. Brothers and sisters, do you not realize that humanity was never more united, never more unified than at the Tower of Babel, united around that massive tower, and yet God scattered them to the winds. They were united in their opposition of God, right? And that's exactly what the Marxist idea attempts to do. The biblical idea that the preacher sets out for us is injustice is going to happen. Oppression is a part of life. The problem isn't systems. The problem is the human heart. The problem is, is behind the system is people who love wickedness and hate goodness that would rather be united against God than conform themselves to God. And so, instead of giving ourselves over to the world's idea of how to respond to justice, we should give ourselves over to the sure and steadfast hope that the Bible gives to us ultimately in Christ. And of course, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. The Bible repeatedly calls us to be just, to act righteously, to do justice, right? But it rescues us from the crushing belief that we can fix the world ourselves. It calls us to do justice, to to do good, to seek justice, but we are not called to be revolutionaries. Instead, we're called to everyday, ordinary faithfulness that will eventually change the world. Look at the fact that almost anybody in the Western world is always going to want to talk about human rights. Where does that conversation come from? Romans weren't talking about it. (laughs) Romans practiced slavery, and happily knew that they were enslaving human beings. They just didn't care. Human rights is a fundamentally Christian idea, an idea that is based upon the scriptures. And so, brothers and sisters, the world as we know it has been shaped by Christianity, and it wasn't through a revolution. It was through the everyday faithfulness of brothers and sisters in Christ that simply loved their families and did good in the community around them. And God did the work. They were just obedient, just faithful. We should aim to replicate Eden as much as possible around us, forming pockets of bright and shining Goshens in the middle of the world's Egypt. But most importantly, before we move on to the last verses, perhaps the most important word that we can say about justice is how it is applied to us in Christ. You see, justice presumes two other attributes of God when we talk about God as the God of justice presumes his love and it presumes his wrath. Without love, justice is unjust. And without wrath, justice is nothing but a fantasy. The preacher's words are hopeful in principle until we consider exactly who is the wicked. Remember back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, where the preacher said this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Well, that means wicked. That means that no one on this earth is good, so therefore everyone on this earth is wicked. Well, now Solomon says in verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked. So that's us. So how do we get from verse 13, how do we move from the verse 13 category that all of us, none of us have done good, all of us are wicked, and get into the hopeful part of verse 12 where we believe that it will be well for us who fear God, who are in the righteous category. 
What hope do we have? Brothers and sisters, the reality is, is no sin will go unpunished. That's the justice of God. Not one sin, no matter how small, will escape. The only question is where the punishment will be dealt. All sin will be punished either upon the cross or in the lake of fire. That's it. And because God is a holy, eternal God, the consequence of sin has to bear an eternal consequence. We have not sinned against a simple king or a simple ruler here on earth. We have sinned against the one who spoke the Son into existence, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so in our rebellion against him, we deserve the full weight of his wrath upon us for even the smallest of our sins. And so that means either spending an eternity in in hell or by God's magnificent grace, he has given us provision. The eternal one himself has come to take the penalty of, of our sins upon himself. Christ, God's only begotten son, came and was crucified to a tree. And the wonder of the crucifixion of Christ is, upon, is a, that upon that cross, the eternal one bore our sins, satisfying the justice of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we too know that it will be well with those who fear God. And our proof is the cursed tree 2,000 years ago that now for us is the tree of life. Final verses. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. We're back to vanity, (laughs) back to the injustice. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And isn't it? (laughs) Isn't it vanity? Isn't it an injustice that the consequences that the life that should befall a wicked person happens to the righteous person and the life that should befall the righteous person happens to the wicked person, right? And in fact, though we know that God will make all things right, Solomon is again pointing us back to the reality that things are not right now. And in fact, that's exactly why God inspired one-third of the Psalms to be laments. Is <laughs> because while we know that things will be better, right now they are not better. So what do we do? Well, the next verse, verse 15, gives us an answer. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil all the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. This is the fourth of five times that that, that the preacher tells us to eat and drink and find enjoyment, to take pleasure, to have joy. And each of these is a gentle refrain that is meant to punch a pinhole of light into the darkness of the vanity under the sun. Notice that in this verse, he uses the phrase under the sun twice. So now he's applying the eternal truth that it will be well with those who fear God. He's applying it to life here and now, to this life that we're living under the sun, and he's saying, and here's what I commend to you, joy. Joy, be joyful in the midst of injustice, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of a world that does not reflect, that does not always reflect the goodness of God. Be joyful. Eat and drink and take joy. Enjoy life. Don't wait until tomorrow thinking that things will be better than they are to begin delighting in what God has given to you. 
Brothers and sisters, stop putting off joy. (laughs) This life will always have sorrow. There will always be new tackles, new problems to tackle. And the next season of life will be just as crazy and just as busy as this one is. Stop giving yourself that lie. Don't let the circumstances that cannot be changed keep us from joy, especially joy in what the Savior has given to us. The beauty of Ecclesiastes is that while everything under the sun is vanity, by knowing him who transcends the sun, we can find joy even within the brevities of life. And so he calls us, particularly to eat and drink, because of just how physical and how common those activities are. Now, of course, the nihilist, as Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's not, what's, that's not what the preacher is saying here. <laughs> He's saying, oh, let's eat and drink. Let's enjoy the pleasures that life has given to us, but not because there's no hope. No, 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 let's eat and drink and enjoy life specifically because there is hope. Even in the midst of hopeless circumstances, even when the world looks like it's burning down around us, we know that this world will one day burn. We know that just as Peter says, the world was first destroyed with water, the next time it'll be destroyed with fire. (laughs) But then after that comes the new one that we get to dwell on in new bodies without sin, without pain, without death, where we get to live with our Lord forever. And so, in light of that, enjoy life. Regardless of the pain, regardless of the sorrow, regardless of what's happening, don't put off enjoying life till tomorrow. Enjoy it now. Last two verses. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though the wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Notice the triple use of the word find, of the phrase find out. What's the point? He's bringing us full circle back to the first verse, right? He's revealing to us the paradox of wisdom, that the truly wise understand just how unwise they are. As Socrates famously said, the only thing that I know is that I don't know anything, (laughs) right? While fools believe themselves to be wise, the wise know exactly how foolish they are. In order to be truly wise, we must be humble enough to admit our limitations and to acknowledge that we do not know best. We do not know best for the cosmos. We do not know best for our city. And we do not know best for ourselves. Wisdom is found in submission to the Almighty, to the one who does know best. So, after all has been heard, what is the end of the matter of chapter 8? Until Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, which is our blessed hope, amen? Amen. Injustice is ingrained into life under the sun, especially in places of authority like the palace of a king. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make things right. We cannot fix the world. But we can clean our rooms. We can make our homes into little Jerusalems in the midst of Babylon. We can live with unwavering hope and with faith's shining joy while the headlines screech to us about the impending apocalypse because for us, the apocalypse is our hope. We look forward to the final revealing of Jesus Christ. The day when the world will cry out for the rocks to to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of the Lamb is the day that we most look forward to with, with the utmost joy.
So what do we have to fear? Brothers and sisters, take this to heart and latch it onto your souls. It will be well with those who fear God. So eat and drink and be joyful. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give thanks to you that you are a God of justice. And just as Abraham said, you are the judge of all the earth who will do right. And so, Father, regardless of what our eyes tell us, Father, we do not walk by sight, but instead we walk by faith. And so, latch us, root us into that hope, into that confidence that even though this world is too big for us, even though the problems that we face in this life are beyond anything that we can handle, you have not expected us to handle it. You have called us to be faithful. You have called us to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. You have called us to latch our hope onto him, both for our salvation here and now and our future redemption that is to come. And so, Father, give us the grace to radiate out the glory of Christ to a world that desperately needs to see that there is a Savior, that there is hope, that there is a life beyond just the life under this sun. Father, give us a hope that transcends the vanity of this life that can only be found in you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.